to the families of anyone who dies. It doesn't matter whether your loved one was killed by a terrorist, a random criminal, or in a car crash or a disease. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and this is the Editor's Roundtable. Today, I'm joined by FP contributor Rosa Brooks, senior Future of War fellow at the New America Foundation and professor at Georgetown University. Also with us is FP columnist Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. Finally, we have Laura Jakes, deputy managing editor of FP News. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. Hi, guys. Hi, David. Hey, David. Let's talk a little bit about what's in the news. What's in the news this week is terror. Um, terror in California. Is it terror? Is it not terror? Um, the news unfolds as we go forward from these, uh, these podcast recordings, so I'm never sure what it's going to be, actually, by the time we get there. But, Laura, you've been on this story does it look like the attacks in San Bernardino had a terror link to them? You know, it really depends on how you define link. Like sausage links? <laughs> um, just before I walked in here, I was talking to a senior intelligence official. He said that uh, these the, two, the couple in question in San Bernardino had had some contacts with people who had been on certain watch lists, sometime probably within the last year or a little over the last year. However, in that time, they had been cleared. They were not considered a threat. Um, they were not considered terrorism. They had thought initially there were some contacts to al-Shabaab, which, of course, is based in Somalia, to al-Nusra, which is in Syria, to even AQAP, which is probably the strongest affiliate of al-Qaeda. But again, those contacts had been cleared. It's not at all clear right now whether there was a true terrorism nexus here. What people are still saying is that this doesn't look like any kind of organized terror group ever came to this couple and said, you should do this, or if you wanted to do it, this is how you could do it. This seems like it was perhaps inspired, but in no way directly linked or directed by a terror group. Okay, so this frames a question for me. Um, there's an attack. Maybe it has a terrorist element. Maybe it doesn't have a terrorist element. People are still dead. There's a lot of sadness and tragedy around it. Uh, the security of a community has been violated. Uh, there are in the United States something like 30,000 gun deaths every year. Uh, there are a tiny, tiny fraction uh, uh, of that in terms of people who even encounter terrorists in any kind of a way. Looking at it myself, I have to conclude that the bigger threat in the United States is the fact that a country with 4% of the world's population has 42% of the world's guns, and we're a little demented on this subject, and that maybe, you know, we ought to do something about it, and yet nothing ever happens on this, and yet, you know, if one person is is injured or, or touched upon, you know, in a terror attack, uh, all of a sudden it becomes, a, you know, not only a national cause celeb, but people in Congress are, you know, eager to pass new bills. Do we understand what national security is in the United States, Rosa? Do we have our priorities screwed up? 
We don't have a very clear understanding of what national security is. I mean, we, we tend to solely think of it as an external issue, and I think we need to be thinking of it as both external and internal, that, that we, we very often, at, we are our own worst enemy in lots of ways. And we've talked in previous podcasts about the, uh, the domestic economy and the ways in which that affects our national security. We've touched on issues like education and so on. But, but clearly, the fact that we kill each other at much, much, much higher rates than anybody else manages to kill us, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a harder issue to deal with. It's a scarier issue to deal with. And I, I, think, I think you're right. We, we get completely crazy when we start trying to think about it. And we don't do anything about it, mainly because of all your people, Corey. <laughs> Wow. Corey, now, now you should just stop right there yeah. <laughs> with that cackle. <laughs> so two things. Thing one, uh, that we are a country full of crazy people isn't news. No, no. If you look at Donald Trump's rating in the polls, there seem to be more of them than I even thought there were. Thank you. All of those crazy people are not on the political right in this country. And what? for us to be able to actually you know, make progress on a whole bunch of these vexing social and national security issues actually requires political leaders who can build common ground. Um, And I think that's a huge part of getting traction on some of these problems. Somebody has to be able to turn the key in the lock and talk about the threat that Americans experience, the everyday horror of parents wondering their kids are going to get shot at school um, with legitimate gun control and legitimate gun ownership. Um, And so I was struck, for example, during the discussion about the attack in San Bernardino, how beautiful it was that people didn't rush to conclusions about the nature of the attack based on, you know, fragments of what came out about the attackers. The New York Post did. Yes. I see I you that point. But, but the majority of news outlets and the majority of people didn't. And that was really wonderful. Um, I wonder if that's because the FBI, some of the law enforcement agencies out in California have been very, very careful to say, we do not know the motive. I mean, it's very irritating as a journalist to sit there and say, how can you not know the motive? How can you be coming through all of these records? You've gone through their house. You've talked to witnesses. This man was apparently screaming in the parking lot for something like 20 minutes before he left the party and went home and got the ammo and his wife. How could you not know what the motive is? But I suspect that one of the reasons why we haven't seen this rush to judgment on, well, this is Islamic-inspired terrorism, simply because these people might happen to be Arab or Muslim, is because the authorities have said, we don't know the motive, and let's be really careful here. Yeah, and that's where leadership matters. I'm old enough to remember when the Oklahoma City bombing occurred. There was a lot, there were a lot of people who wanted to make a judgment about a foreign terrorist doing this. And it made a big difference that President Clinton and other political leaders were responsible in preventing that kind of stampede. But, but Especially since crazy. it turned out to be a white dude, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, well, but wait a minute. We are like, you know, kind of cr- crazy about this stuff. There have been 350 some odd mass shootings in the United States in the past year. 
If there were 350 terrorist attacks in the United States in the past year, the president would be impeached. People would be thrown out of Congress. This would be a there would be a revolution if there were 350 terrorist attacks. Meanwhile, people are just as dead. Well, society so is just as torn apart. You know, does it make a difference? Saying that this was a terrorist attack is not saying but it's associated with a bigger threat. Actually, if you say this was a terrorist attack, it's actually associated with a smaller threat than the threat of gun violence in the United States from law-abiding Americans. That's actually a really nice point, David. I think well, thank the, you. I think That's the, the first time in our 11th <laughs> podcast. I think, though, that to be, to be absolutely cold-blooded about it, every society makes a decision about which deaths it's willing to accept as a cost of doing business and which deaths it's not willing to accept. And, I mean, you could look at it... Uh, the way economists and lawyers do, right, which, which again, is, is fairly unpleasant, um, and say, hey, we have more than 30,000 deaths from automobile crashes in the United States every year. And most of those deaths are preventable, right? We could decide that nobody's allowed to drive. We could, short of that, we could decide that the speed limit's going to be 20 miles an hour. You could design we, cars. So we could design cars differently. While they're driving. You could do all, we could, we could do all kinds of things to dramatically, dramatically reduce that number from 30,000 down to a tiny number. We don't. In fact, we have because it used to be well, it 50, used to be fifty thousand. Right. But 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 the many further steps that we could take, we haven't because, quite frankly, to be you know totally blunt about it, we as a society have decided that we would rather have thirty thousand dead bodies every year than do a bunch of things that are a little bit inconvenient and expensive, and. On the other hand, you know, there are certain categories of dead bodies that we've decided collectively are not okay categories of dead bodies. So I don't I'm not that surprised that we well, single out particular types just, it's, of it's, it's but it's friggin' crazy. But okay? people are crazy. That's what no, makes humans humans. We're no, crazy. No, 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 but, but, no, no. Well, first of all, that's not it's not true. No other country in the world has nobody's does crazy in our special way. Right. But, 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 but crazy, no other country has this. You know, we talk about law abiding gun owners and every mm -hmm. all the time I think. Why should people be allowed to have guns? Well, Most societies are not allowed to have a gun. Would be the reason people are allowed That's to have complete guns baloney. The Second Amendment doesn't say anything <laughs> like that at all. The Second Amendment says in order to enable people to have militias, they have the right to have guns. We don't have militias, <laughs> so they don't have the right to well, have guns. I, one thing I think is absolutely right that that both of you have said is is that uh, there's plenty of crazy going around. It's not just on the political right. It's not just Muslims. It's not just white people. It's not just Christians. It's not just anybody in particular. Crazy, in my experience, is pretty evenly distributed across groups of people. When you combine lots of crazy, which every society has, with lots of weapons sloshing around, you're going to get a lot of shootings. Let's just go back to the bigger national security question. Yes, please. There's a bigger national security question, which is it's not just gun violence. If you wanted to reduce the number of Americans who are dead as a consequence of real threats to our security, you'd focus first on gun violence and the second on drugs, you know, which also, by the way, you know, the violation of drug laws has led to the incarceration of a ridiculously high percentage of our minority population, torn those societies apart, rendered them economically dysfunctional, thus creating more pressure for crime, thus compounding the security risk. You know, th these, these are real security threats. And then to compound it, 
you have a couple of nitwits in the Republican <laughs> presidential field who are denouncing President Obama for having the temerity to suggest that global warming was actually something worth discussing, even though clearly the consequences of global warming are broader, more serious, more significant than terrorism in any conceivable way, uh, will affect hundreds of millions of people as opposed to thousands of people. Both are bad things. But the notion that somehow this is inappropriate for the president to spend some time on this is nuts. Right, Laura? Uh, <laughs> you know, as a reporter here, I'm just going to make some observations as opposed to sweeping generalizations. Um, when, I, when has there been a sweeping generalization in this conversation? I would like you to identify <laughs> one. I'm going to get back to you on that. <laughs> Because I'd like to make my very astute observation oh, going back to okay. something that Rosa said a few minutes ago. I mean, it clearly it comes down to what you had said. It's the cost of doing business. People have decided what they want to focus on, what they want to spend their money on, what their priorities is. You know, going back to the gun conversation a few minutes ago, um, I was having some discussions with people about, well, do we need – Basically, David, your broad generalization about how come nobody ever does anything when one of these terrible events happens. That's not a generalization. That's a fact. No one has done anything. You know, there was a we, vote. We, they wrung their hands. There was a vote last night. They gnashed their teeth. We try not, we, we try not to uh, put these things too close in date, but it happens that the day before we recorded this, there was a vote in the Congress on a gun control bill uh, legislation, the same thing that was proposed right after the Newtown killings. Not one vote changed in the three and a half years since Newtown to today. And that is exactly my point. So there is also a vote on Obamacare, which um, is going to be vetoed by the president. So it was mostly symbolic vote. But the Republican Congress said we are going to tank Obamacare. These are the same people who always say, you know, why are we even talking about gun control? We should be spending more money on mental health services. You know, it's not guns that kill people. It's people that kill people. So we need to bolster mental health. And then when there's a mental health funding package that comes along, they tank it. So that's just my observation. Yeah. Your sweeping generalizations, I think, are are largely correct. Uh, uh, we don't <laughs> He's raising his hands in triumph um, for our listeners. Um, uh, the NRA as a lobbying group has really been captured by uh, ammunition and weapons manufacturers. One of the most interesting and depressing things is the NRA itself is completely out of step with its own membership. Most Americans do not think that the types of weapons that can be used to mow down large numbers of people in seconds should be a right that everybody, you know, everybody should have the right to possess those. Most Americans are, are reasonably sane issue by issue on gun control things. People want to be able to go and shoot a deer or a turkey if well, they live in certain a, areas. That's a okay, great fine. impulse, yeah. Well, you know, whatever. But 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 I don't some have— Some people eat those you know, some people eat them. animals. Um, mm -hmm. I eat them. I don't shoot them, but I do eat them from the supermarket, so I can't really condemn people who want to shoot them and eat I them. I think it would be fair um, if people, if they wanted to eat the animals, had to strangle them. I think that would be reasonable too, but 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 believing that aside, you don't actually find a lot of Americans as individuals defending defending the notion that the Second Amendment brings with it some kind of personal right, you know, to nuclear arms or something. This is the NRA that's taken this crazy position. It's very hard to know what to do with that given our political system. The the other thing I was gonna say though, on not on the issue of gun control, but on the issue of the ways in which the the political discourse fueled by the uh, Republican primaries going on right now is getting more and more extreme in ways that are really scary. I was I was quite shocked. I, I, don't, I don't know why I was shocked. I, I shouldn't have bought. I shouldn't have been shocked because what else is new with Donald Trump? But 
But, you know, Donald Trump is proposing a national registry of Muslims. They should all have to register. And I was actually shocked by that. I mean, and, and I think it's very easy. We all dismiss Donald Trump, including including most mainstream Republicans dismiss Donald Trump. Oh, well, he's just he's just a nut. Nobody takes him seriously. But this is how extreme, horrible things happen in societies, is that somebody who nobody takes seriously says extreme, crazy, horrible things. Everybody laughs it off, but it gradually shifts the discourse a little bit further. And then the next time somebody says it, it doesn't sound quite as crazy. And the next time somebody says it, mm. it sounds even less crazy. And, mm. I, you know, that, that kind of stuff is fascism. Pretty soon you have people wearing stars on their jackets. And pretty soon you—right. Yeah, and, and, and indeed, I, I know that somebody's now going to bring up— Somebody's going to now bring up whatever the whoever's little phrase of when the conversation brings in Hitler, you know that blah, 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 blah. It's, and, and I always think it's the opposite. I always think that far from the being l- upset when people. No, but you're absolutely right. The leading candidate in the Republican Party by far, the person who in a most recent poll I saw was rated as the best person on foreign policy, has said we should create a database of Muslims. Right, right. And, and, and to me, you know, the. I know, I know it's considered uh, not done to impro- invoke Hitler in conversations because that seems unfair, but it seems to me that probably we would be better off thinking more and invoking more the specter of the uniquely horrific things that humans have done to one another uh, with that being a leading, a leading, although hardly the sole example, uh, no, rather it's, than less, it's, because it's when you forget that, bad things happen. typically called fascistic. Yeah. Uh, Corey. Let's elevate the conversation. Um, that's why I turn to you, because you're associated with the Stanford University. <laughs> um, national security. What's the biggest national security threat that the U.S. really faces? In my judgment, the biggest national security threat is our solvency. Solvency? It's solvency. Our ability to not spend more money than we take in. And I would put that closely followed and related to governability. I think the amount of craziness in our political system right now, as as a lot of the stuff that we were just discussing, um, is illustrative of. David, I know I've said this before, but it feels a little bit like the 1890s to me, where there's so much technological change that's driving a, a sense of social upheaval where the economy's changing radically, nobody's explaining, nobody's able to make sense out of it for ordinary people who feel like they have lost control over their fate, right? The government doesn't feel responsive enough to them. The world feels scary to them. You don't have leaders who are helping people face change bravely and understand what's happening. And so there's there's radicalism, both political and also a lot of violence. Um, and and that's a big problem for our country because not only for what we experience, but also for what we look like to the world. The secret of American hegemony is that mostly countries around the world and people around the world have wanted us to succeed at what we are trying to craft for ourselves and for others. And we just look flat out crazy right now. Laura, biggest national security threat faced by the U.S.? I am going to stick with terrorism, foreign terrorism that inspires homegrown terrorism. Okay, so explain that. Let's let's break that down. Worst case scenario. Another 9-11? 
Okay, 9-11 was not a strategic blow to the United States. It was tragic. But um, 17 acres of lower Manhattan were destroyed, and four days later, the markets were back up and on their feet again. Uh, it was it, It's a terrible thing, but are there not threats to the United States that are more significant than body blows like that? Yeah, probably, and I'm sure you'll tell us all about them. But it was a certain <laughs> certainly it was a huge, you know, blow to the American psyche and to the world psyche. You you could say the same thing about Paris, right? I mean, only 130 people died in Paris, and now it's it served to rally the entire world around going well, after but, the Islamic State. That's the state. point. That's the point about terrorism. Terrorism is extremely painful. It is. Uh, uh, that is not the point about terrorism. The point about terrorism is that it's extremely unpredictable, and you never know when it's going to happen. No. You can monitor markets. You mm. might have a better sense for something like that. Well, I was getting to a different point of terrorism, which is that it's extremely painful, but the main consequence of terrorism is the terror. In other words, the main thing that it does is it infects the outlook of a country and changes their behavior. And one of the clearest symptoms of that is suggesting that terror is the primary threat to a country. Rosa. No, I, I agree with you, David. I mean, I think I, I, I going back to Corey's point, I'm not sure I agree with the solvency issue, but I certainly think that the biggest threat is is our dysfunctionality as a country in terms of our government dysfunctionality, because part of the reason we get so terrified by terrorism is because we have very poor political leadership at the moment. We have very little ability to, to get any coherent response or any kind of rational response given the dysfunctions in our political system, which then exacerbates and exaggerates the impact, the psychological impact nationwide of terror attacks that, that you're right, statistically statistically do very little damage relative to all kinds of other bad stuff that happens. You know, the damage, the damage is, the, is the terror. The damage is the way that we turn ourselves into pretzels trying to respond to something rather than having any ability to respond more resiliently. I mean, think about the Think about the, I mean, here's an overused example, obviously, but, you know, the British during the Blitz, did they fall apart and get hysterical? No, they, they maintained their stiff British upper lips and pulled up their socks and did all those British things that British people do when they're being bombed to smithereens. You know, thousands of people were killed. Um, you know, families were torn apart. Uh, all sorts of horrible things happened, and it seems to have been taken far more in its stride than Americans take very small-scale attacks. Well, and I think you know, part of it is it was an existential threat, and they realized that to succumb to the psychological pressures associated with an existential threat was to invite the worst possible outcome, and that they actually had to go directly – Against that, and indeed, you know, even the U.S. in the in 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 the early days of the war had a president saying the only thing we have to fear is fear yeah. itself. Right? That's true. Fear well, and, is viral. And yeah. I know this is usually a a trope of the right rather than the left, but but I do think uh, we modern Americans should should be a little shamed when we think back to earlier generations and the privations and risks that they took. When you think of the death rate amongst early settlers. Uh, when you think of the, the, the death rate among women delivering oh, babies, one you know, out of three women died in childbirth When in you the think 19th of the century. death rate in our early conflicts, um, and I'm leaving, leaving aside what we shouldn't be leaving aside, which is the things that were done to the Native American population, slavery, et cetera, et cetera. Just look at our own national mythologies uh, at, the, at the, the pioneers, the, the pilgrims. 
you know, that, that we that we once took in our stride a an unbelievable level of risk, death, and privation. Today, we get a very small number of deaths, and we just flip out. And this is, you know, recognizing, obviously, to the to the families of anyone who dies, it doesn't matter whether your loved one was killed by a terrorist, a random criminal, or in a car crash or a disease. You're just as devastated. But as a nation, we react. We react as though it is an existential so, threat. In some when it's in not. some cases, right? The, the, there is a threat that is killing Americans at a rate terrorists will never get to. It's not guns, and it's it's not automobiles, and it's not um, uh, uh, drugs. It's food, sugar. Obesity, diabetes, this is the th biggest epidemic in the United States right now. There's no massive national mobilization about that. I mean, I believe 30 years from now, people look back and say, oh, those were the sugar eaters. Those were people that ate that drug that killed people. You know, and 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 we and we don't we don't think about this, Laura. You eat a lot of that drug. What's your view? <laughs> I'm wondering if uh, 50 years people will look back and say, "Wow, those people were really skinny, and they really did care about going to the gym because they'll be eating so many more of those sugary drugs." Uh, so I think we're gonna lose. We're gonna lose. It's gonna that be like battle. the people in Wally. Listen, I mean, <laughs> I. I uh, it seems like the, the sugar drug has really infected the Far East in a way huh. that you wouldn't have seen probably 50 years ago, right? I mean, you see a lot of Asian tourists um, across Europe and well, in the but, United States. But, and you know, you know that there's somebody out there in our vast nerd network of audience members. Who are going to be mad at what I just said. No, yeah, no they're going to be like, they're talking about sugar. They're not talking about terrorists. They should be talking about ISIS because ISIS is a much bigger threat than sugar. And it's not. You know, ISIS is not a bigger threat than sugar. And the reality, of course, is that, you know, I couldn't run on the Republican ticket with that kind of a view. Um, Corey, I'm sure you agree with me and you could end up in the next Republican administration. Will you take a stronger stand against sugar than ISIS? <laughs> <laughs> I will not, as a matter of fact, because it does seem to me that you know, individual responsibility matters. <laughs> I saw a news article yesterday, no kidding, and it reminded me that this may be the turning point at which the West falters. A, a retired Canadian military service member successfully sued the Canadian government arguing that he is obese because of the kind of food they served on the Navy ships he spent his military career serving on. He won that case, right? Won damages against the Canadian government as though he Canada. bore Canada no responsibility for what he himself ate over a 20-year time period. Canada is great. We have to do a whole podcast on Canada. They get everything right. So basically, Canada, I, I think Canada is America is without the lobotomy. Bomb you know, it's ISIS with a Twinkie drop. <laughs> <laughs> there should be a way we can combine these insights, actually. Um, it, it will take a long time. But, but, I feel but, like <laughs> the country is at risk of David cutting the defense budget in order to fund the war on sugar. Oh, come on. 
That would be <laughs> the smartest thing that we ever did in the United States. There is no way we will do anything that enlightened. We have a defense budget that's multiple of the next, you know, XD countries, most of whom are allies. We're spending ridiculous amounts of money to prepare for wars we will never fight with weapons that we can never use uh, and and redundancies that, you know, would make any, you know, junior level accountants eyes cross. And we're ignoring the big threats that we've got yeah. to our country. But I, but I mean, Corey's right that the problem is not sugar as such, and and you're right, David, that the problem is not lack of personal responsibility as such. Why do we have obesity? Is it just that people are so weak-willed that they, you know, when confronted by a healthful meal side by side with a Twinkie, they always go for the Twinkie? Yeah, that's a little bit of the problem. For, for some people, but we also have problems of, you know, food deserts in poor communities, the lack of availability and affordability and education about uh, more nutritious foods in many American communities, that the, the, the obesity is linked to poverty, it's linked to low education. There's plenty of sugar in my household. Nobody's obese. Uh, that you know, it's let's we we can't demonize the Twinkies, but we also can't demonize the people who end up getting fat because much of the time there is an incredibly strong correlation between obesity and uh, other other forms of social dysfunction like poverty. Um, but what is what is the implication of this for national security? Though I think I think that you know it it goes back to that same central point that Corey talked about before that. We we know that there are great structural problems in our society we, relating to our educational system, relating to our criminal law system, relating to how we think about weapons and their availability, relating to our health care system, including our mental health care system, as Laura said earlier. Uh, and yet, even though we know these things, and the same is true of climate change, we know these things, even though issue by issue— in most public opinion polls, most Americans agree with these things and say, I want something to be done about it. We have a political party structure, a campaign system, and a governance system that makes it virtually impossible to do anything meaningful in a long-term way about any of these things. Well, that's pretty distressing. I mean, it is also, you know, I mean, you compound that with— Empire in decline. Uh, well— the there Kardashian is, country. The, yep. the Kardashian country. That's and that's country with a K. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of country with a K, there's Corey with a K out there in California, which actually is Kardashian country. Is it all your fault? Many things that bedevil the country do actually have their genesis in the state of California. So yes, it's true that that. The Golden State is problematic in all sorts of ways. So you're never running for office out there, basically. <laughs> you're never giving no, Jerry no. Brown a run for his money. I, I was bragging. I was bragging. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this podcast today feels very much like it should be labeled domestic policy, not foreign policy. But no, it's national security policy. You were the one who said solvency was the biggest national security threat we have. But I also feel like... The notion that it's impossible to address these problems with our political system, I just don't actually think is true, because the American political system has actually done a reasonably good job over 10-year time frames of solving our problems. And it does so when people actually demand that government solve its problems. And I, in my judgment, a lot of the a lot of the anger and a lot of the fractionization that's going on in American politics is because leaders aren't actually trying to build unity. And you can argue the public won't stand for it, people won't allow compromise. 
but I actually think that's not true. What are the big the big ones? So so a minute ago you were you were saying that you feel like when you give give us a ten year time frame and we're we're actually pretty good at solving big problems. Yeah. Well, I would suggest that gay marriage is the first thing she'll mention, and then probably legalization of marijuana. Right, Corey? Compared to two thousand to the year two thousand, I would argue the American government has actually gotten really good at identifying foreign threats to our country. We're getting pretty good. It doesn't seem like it on this sad day in the shadow of San Bernardino, but we are actually getting pretty good at figuring out how to understand the nature of radicalization and to do something about it. We haven't yet got good at at border security, for example, but the reason is that it's actually shocking how few people who come in this country illegally mean to harm this country. Um, like that that's a big and interesting phenomenon that we don't have a terrorism problem across the southern border that that we have a difficult time managing. Well, because most of the people who come to this country are looking to improve their lives by coming here. Exactly. It's wonderful. You know, look, there's a lot of there's a lot of good things going on, and I'm sorry if it feels to you like this was a very domestic policy oriented discussion. But I feel when we have events like this one, it does raise the question: Are we prioritizing properly? Do we understand what a national security threat is? Does a national security threat have to be foreign in order to be the most significant one? It wasn't for most of American history that case. Absolutely. I think that's a really important question, David, and you've given me pause to think about it because you're right. Um, The enormity of what we spend on national defense, the military, the intelligence complex, um, like we should have a national conversation about are we spending – 20% of our federal budget wrongly given the national security threats we face? And can we, as a political culture, have a conversation in which you can actually build enough, um, enough commonality across party lines that will get things addressed? Okay. So... I think this is a good place to wrap up this particular discussion because I do think we framed an issue here um, intentionally or otherwise, which is to say when you think about national security, must you always be thinking about foreign threats? And if, in fact, there are great domestic national security threats, why are we not prioritizing them better? Why are we not allocating resources better? Um, I think that's an important question for people to consider. Uh, and that's why we're here doing this podcast. And I want to thank all of you for a terrific job framing this issue. And I want to invite all of our audience to join us again for another podcast from the tiny podcast studio high above Washington's DuPont Circle. You have been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe, please visit foreignpolicy.com. And thank you very much for joining us.